Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. All right. Well, it's the top of the hour. It's 10 a.m. here in Seattle, Washington. It's what time for you, Alex? 6 p.m., Brian, just per the calendar invite you clicked on. <laughs> 6 p.m. British Standard Time, if I'm not mistaken. And Summertime, by the way, yeah. by the way, smartass, um, my calendar invite only says my local time, not your time. Just FYI. All right. All right. So for anyone who's on who is not a Hidden History Happy Hour regular listener, and thank you so much to those of you who are. I see a bunch of you here. It's amazing. I can't wait to hear your voices for the first time. But for anyone who's not, this is the Hidden History Happy Hour with me, Brian, and him, Alex. And on the show, we have a drink, we have a laugh, we tell some stories from history, and we hope uh, we give you a few nuggets that you can take back in your daily lives. This entire enterprise is based on the wonderful book, Lessons uh, from History, Hidden Heroes and Villains from the Past and What We Can Learn from Them by my co-host, Alex Dean. Alex, why don't you introduce yourself for those of you who don't know us? Thank you, my friend. Uh, I'm Alex Dean. I am a Londoner, but from Suffolk originally. Uh, I wrote Lessons from History last year. I tell stories, I'm not going to commit myself to daily because they're not daily, but almost (laughs) daily on Twitter. Uh, I love it when people suggest stories. I just posted the 160th uh, Dean History story on Twitter where I am. Amazing. Thank you very much. Where I am at AJC Dean, D-E-A-N-E. We've been having a blast recording this, I think, since January, if I remember right. Yeah. And and we had a Twitter poll um, in which I'm sure some of the guys listening today uh, took part, in which we offered a choice of subjects, and the decisive vote was to have UFO stories. Well, yes, and and unlike some places in the world, democracy rules here at the Hidden History Happy Hour. I just would just add one other thing, which is uh, you can find us at hashtag Hidden History Happy Hour or on our Twitter account, or you can subscribe on Spotify, or you can subscribe to our uh, our YouTube channel or all of those. That would be great. Sometimes, you know, I don't know, uh, people can't see us right now. Some people like to see these mugs, some people don't. So you can do it either way. If you want to listen in your car, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. But today, Alex, today, by de- Democratic vote, we are going to talk about UFOs, unidentified flying objects. And as our listeners know, I uh, served a career in the Central Intelligence Agency, so I have some perspective on this. And uh, you uh, live in the country that invented the Foo Fighters. So um, <laughs> I, think, I think we both have a little bit to say. But first, we have to give a big thanks to our sponsor, Blue Run Bourbon, the official bourbon of the Hidden History Happy Hour. I'm going to take a ceremonial sip today, Alex. Open mine and pour it now. If I hold it close enough to the mic, maybe you get a. That's a pretty generous slug I gave myself. We all do right. hear it. Cheers. I hope cheers. all of our listeners who are drinking responsibly are cheersing with us right now. Cheers to everybody. Perhaps later, uh, our Jeremy, our producer, we can turn on a few mics and uh, listen to the cheers of everybody. But I have to say, much as we love Blue Run, which we do, I just had a ceremonial sip with you. Yep. As our loyal listeners know, we've had a long-running debate about the merits of vodka versus gin with the American side promoting vodka and generally speaking, the British uh, and continental side promoting gin. I have been a longtime gin hater. I will confess to that. I don't like extra plants in my booze generally, but our listeners, Alex and you, have now successfully exhorted me to try gin. So while I couldn't find here in Washington state any of the great English gins that you guys recommended, I did have an English muffin for breakfast this morning to make up for it. Oh, and I'm on it. Look, at what I, look at what I found. This is number five. You can't Counter. see people. On, yeah. You can't see, but I will read it. This is number five on the wine enthusiast list of best new gins. It's called Counter Gin, and it is, it is uh, distilled right here in Seattle, Washington. Oh. And I must say, I was trying to be creative, which is always a mistake. We don't have one of our guest celebrity bartenders here today. I tried to make a excellent uh, breakfast peach gin martini an hour or so ago, which was a complete and utter disaster. So I returned to the basics. And so this is a classic British gin and tonic. Uh, I figure 10 generations of sailors 
who didn't get malaria can't be wrong. So let's oh, do man. one more cheers and get into it. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. And by the way, not bad. Not bad at all. Oh, I, might have you to, like I might have to rethink. You know, at my age, Alex, a lot of times people don't rethink their choices, but I, uh, I think I'm, I'm, still, um, I'm still nimble enough to do that. Before we get started, I need to welcome uh, one of our favorite guests from the entire history of our show, Mr. Terry Franklin. But Terry uh, told us an amazing story of, of his ancestor, uh, who was a, a slave here in the United States and a uh, uh, person of servitude who was, was freed uh, in the will of her master, and then his evil uh, descendants or relatives tried to fight that. Now, as I said, by majority vote, we are talking about flying saucers today. And I don't want to say I put my thumb on the scale because I didn't, but I couldn't mm. be happier. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't be happier with the way this turned out because as our viewers, when this episode comes out, can see I'm holding up a copy of the book Flying Saucer Pilgrimage by Austin and uh, by Austin Bryant and Helen Reeve. Now, this book is still available on Amazon. Alex, I think it's about two million notches below Lessons from History. So no competition there. And uh, you can you can still order it. Uh, you'll get a very beat up, tired copy because I think it was last in print in about 1960. Why do I care about this? Well, as it turns out, and now I'm showing their picture to our viewers for in the future. Welcome to the welcome to the past, everybody that's watching this in a couple of weeks. Uh, these are my grandparents. Gosh, it's a great story. Now, the story I'm going to tell and our super loyal listeners who have delved across the oeuvre of Alex's and I, Alex's and my Twitter appearances. Well, no, we've told this story before on another podcast, um, Tactopia with our friend Chitra Raghavan. This is a story of a, a actual flying saucer hunt that occurred in the 1950s. And I'm gonna tell you that story, but first I wanna tell you about how I know the story from my grandparents. Now, you'll find this story might be mm, a little spooky, a little silly, perhaps a little disturbing. At least we're hearing it as a group of friends in a controlled, um, uh, safe environment. I started hearing these stories when I was seven years old from my grandfather, who was quite an opposing authority figure. And the story goes like this. In the late 1950s in North America, there was a flying saucer craze, one that comes along periodically. There have been a number of others. There was one in the 1990s, which actually led to the naming of an American band, which we'll talk about later. But in the 50s, there was a lot less government censorship about UFOs. There was a lot more sort of open-mindedness about it, I think, uh, uh, a lot less stigma associated with it. And so my grandfather, Bryant Reeve, who was a, uh, a PhD engineer, uh, career engineer, uh, no dummy, uh, not that you have to have a PhD to not be a dummy, but he essentially retired uh, early. And he and my grandmother decided to take their car and drive thousands and thousands of miles in the 50s across North America and just record the stories of everyone who had claimed they had had an encounter with unidentified flying objects. I don't know if anything like this happened in England, Alex. What is, what is the attitude towards UFOs in, in the UK? Uh, much, much the same, fewer claims of abductions, but uh, many cases of people um, claiming to have seen them. And probably, I'm guessing, even fewer cases of probing. Uh, uh, yeah, of, that's of an alleged American, probing. That's an American thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now that I've said probing, we should note that um, although Alex and I uh, occasionally will say some fucking profanity, uh, we 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 are uh, we are wanting everyone to speak freely. You can say whatever you want. You can use whatever words you want. But no rudeness, no insensitivity. If anyone tries to bully anyone, you will be out, and you'll not only be out this time but all future times. I see Terry Franklin, our friend, is available to speak now. Terry, how are you, sir? Hello. I had so much fun coming on at the beginning of the, of the whole series, and I've been enjoying listening all Thank along. Thank you. Our very first guest. Great man. Yes, our very first and still one of the best, and uh, we encourage you to check out uh, Terry Franklin's story and all of his various um, Bending the Arc of Justice endeavors. Terry, what's the best place for our uh, listeners to look for you? You know, uh, they can look for uh, www.lucysutton.com, uh, or they can just look for me on uh, Instagram as Terry Franklin or Twitter, Terry Franklin LA. Uh, you'll find me if you look. And, and my recent um, 
TED Talk uh, is now posted. Oh, so yeah. that's available on YouTube called Bending the Arc of History. So if you look for Bending the Arc of History YouTube, you should find Terry Franklin there giving his TED Talk about how we all have a role to play in shaping history. Well, and this is obviously obviously right uh, on message with our podcast, Terry, as is your amazing story of Lucy Sutton. Still much that we can learn from that today. We're going to return. Hopefully there'll be some conversation about that story towards the end. I'm going to get through this story, though, so we can um, hear from our listeners. And thanks very much for joining us, Terry. So uh, imagine this. Imagine this, it's the late 1950s, so I don't know, Alex, 30, 40 years ago, you know my math skills. Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a while back, and uh, my grandfather and grandmother decided to drive around the country cataloging UFO stories, and you have to imagine what this was like. Apparently at the time, and this was even slightly before my time, Alex, apparently at the time, UFOs were so big in the popular culture of North America, that there were these like tent-like revivals, like imagine Coachella for UFOs, Coachella for UFOs. And people would go and join up and go to these events and have food and drink and talk about their abductions and their probing and whatever else they were claiming and, you know, buy and sell souvenirs. So my grandfather and grandmother drive around and a lot of their time was spent in Mexico because at the time, the, in their view, the Mexican government was being much more forthcoming than the U.S. government about reported UFO sightings. And in this book, Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, they catalog mm, conversations with, I would say, three, four dozen people in depth. And then they just record the stories of a lot of other people. And as a young person, and by young, I mean seven, eight, nine years old, my father, their son, was not at all keen on us learning about this story. In fact, he was quite embarrassed about it. I'm not sure whether this is because he was a man of the cloth or he just thought they were kooky. But imagine me uh, digging through my father's library. Alex, I know some experience, some, something you have some experience with and finding hidden at the back of the shelf flying saucer pilgrimage and reading this story. And the only real thought I had had at this point about UFOs was my grandmother would take me out in the backyard sometimes at night and try to show me UFOs, which, of course, I never saw anything I thought was, well, I guess everything was unidentified when I was seven, but nothing I thought was a flying saucer. And then I read this book, and I read this book by my grandparents, uh, my grandfather, quite an authority figure to me, and it's weird, okay, but it's kind of, you know, I can read it as just a story until I get about two thirds of the way through. And my grandfather has recorded in the book, and you can find this on Amazon, a transcript of his conversation with the aliens. <laughs> now, <laughs> here's me, you know, eight, seven, eight years old thinking about this. If having reread this now as an adult, what he actually does is a little tricky. He says they hired a medium, a spiritualist in Mexico, and the spiritualist talked to the aliens, and the spiritualist typed out the answers to the question. So I leave it to our listeners. Were they really talking to the continuum? Was the, was the spiritualist making it up? Did my grandfather make it up for the book? Unfortunately, my grandparents died before I ever was old enough to think to ask those questions, but it's in there. Now, I will say, Happy note, the alien continuum tells my grandfather, everything's going to be great. We're sitting around to protect you humans from destroying yourselves. The future governance in your, in your distant um, future is going to be amazing, peaceful, sort of like Star Trek without any, uh, any Klingons. So full stop, two years, three years later, I guess it was, my grandmother decides to pay for my father and I to go on a trip to Mexico, which was, we were very, very, very uh, poor. I will say poor in wealth. We weren't, we weren't poor in happiness, but we, we had no money. So I had never left the state and my grandmother uh, had come into some money. And so maybe from the aliens, I don't know. So she took us on this long trip through various locations in Mexico. And I, I vaguely remember it. But I remember enough of it to know that when I read the book again a couple uh, years ago and I looked at the pictures, they triggered memories of me being in those spots. And so what I know now this was, was her indoctrination tour of me in UFOs. She wanted to show me and my father all the places that had meant the most to her and her husband in, in the UFO tour. And I'm going to stop now because I want us to 
have a conversation. And I know Alex has some things he wants to talk about, but I will just end with this. And this is what we focused on in uh, Chitra's wonderful podcast, Techtopia. In uh, the late 50s, my father and grandmother were agitated. Sorry, my grandfather and grandmother were agitated enough about uh, what they thought was a cover up by the United States government of UFOs. They decided to telegram President Dwight David Eisenhower. Sorry, as usual, I have my math wrong. This was 1954, December 16th, 1954. They send a cable telegram from Mexico, cost them probably a significant amount of money to do that in those days, to Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Your reference to flying saucers at a recent news conference has astounded us. They go on to say how it's been conclusively proven that UFOs exist, and why are you, Mr. Eisenhower, our favorite president since Lincoln, denying this uh, from the American people? And they insist that the truth can only come forth by, and now I'm quoting, openly and publicly accounting a receptive and unbiased scientific commission, sorry, appointing a receptive and unbiased scientific commission to investigate and report, close quote, 1954. Sadly, my grandparents died before what we would think of now, Alex, as a Freedom of Information Act request was ever answered. However, as people probably know, in the last three years, not only has President Barack Obama come out and said there are definitely aerial phenomenon that the U.S. government cannot explain, There have been public, under oath, sworn hearings in the House of Representatives in in the United States of Navy pilots and others who have videotaped and recorded the sightings and swear that they cannot explain them based on any known phenomenon. So I like to think history has come around to my grandparents' point of view. Well, that's well told, Brian. And I suppose the heart of this is the uh, is the Fermi paradox, um, which mm-hmm. um, takes its name from a physicist called Enrico Fermi, not only a physicist, Nobel Prize winner, who, um, along with most of us, realizes the mathematical and statistical incredibly unlikely yes. uh, proposition that, that mankind is unique and alone in the universe. And, and therefore, g- given how enormous the um, universe is and how many galaxies there are, given how our solar system is quite young compared to the rest of the universe or much of the rest of the universe. Um, and that interstellar travel might be, you know, something that civilizations can achieve. The question isn't, are UFOs UFOs? The question is, how come we haven't been visited by aliens already many times and seen them? Um, or, be, or have we? Or indeed, have we? And um, Fermi punted around, I mean, he, he died around the time that you were talking about in, in the 1950s, but... Um, the kind of the thoughts about what might explain the answer to the Fermi paradox was addressed by in our Royal Astronomical Society by a guy called Michael Hart in in the 70s, Mm. which is obviously sometime after Fermi died. But the kind of the things that Hart suggests is one, it's there's some physical difficulty that makes space travel infeasible that we haven't worked out yet. But you know, there's some problem with with traveling between the stars, astronomy, biology, engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, It's just not possible to do. Second is aliens just aren't interested in humans, right? We're just not interesting enough. They don't care. Um, Third. Uh, that advanced civilizations beyond the earth arose too recently for aliens to reach us. Well, that one I, I find difficult because um, the our solar system's about four and a half billion years old, and much of the yeah. rest of the universe is about 14 billion years old. So that seems an unlikely proposition uh, to me if, if aliens are out there. And the last is aliens did visit, but we haven't seen them. And, uh, and that's the one that you were hinting at, yeah. wasn't it? But my, my point being, you know, the universe is incredibly vast and old. There are you know, hundreds of millions of, of suns, uh, billions of planets around which um, civilizations may have may have grown up. So, um, you, you know, when Fermi came up with that idea, we only knew our, the planets in our own solar right. system. Yeah. You know, but, but in recent decades, we've demonstrated the existence of many planets around many other suns. So, um, yeah, the no, if, if, if really the maintaining... You, know, you don't have to believe a single UFO story um, to to recognize that maintaining that humanity is the sole intelligent life form in the universe <laughs> is actually a bizarrely arrogant perspective yes. to have, given yes. the mathematical and statistical unlikeliness uh, of us being the only uh, creatures um, to have developed intelligence in all that time. 
Yeah. And, you know, the amazing thing, Alex, 26 episodes, 27 episodes into this adventure with you is this is the first time arrogance has ever reared its ugly head on this show. So I I think (laughs) I don't know what you're hinting at. (laughs) All right. I think I think we made it a long time. Let me just say one other thing about this, because we we pitched this and I know there are at least some people on here who are not uh, regular listeners of our show and welcome aboard. Please join us. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes. I was a career uh, CIA officer. I spent 15 years in the agency and I was uh, Condi Rice's lawyer and the National Security Council when she was our National Security Advisor. And since we promised a CIA take on this, what I would say about that is two things. One, I think the second or third most common Freedom of Information Act request for information that we got from Americans. What, what's uh, in when f- I was there. Area 51? <laughs> yes, which we'll talk about in three years. But, uh, <laughs> but also just more generally about UFOs, it was so common that we had a package of material prearranged that we would send out to people that asked about that. And the more substantive thing I want to say, though, is if you and I, I commend our listeners to do this, if you go watch some of this congressional testimony where they showed the video and, and other sensor recording of these unidentified flying objects, the capability of those aircraft to move, to dive, to, to climb, to disappear, to go underwater is so far in advance of anything that is known to American technology that Mm. honestly, as a national security person, Alex, I hope it's aliens because if it's Russia or Iran or China or one of our other adversaries that have this capability, we're in serious trouble. Right. Well, let me, shall I tell a story? Um, Yes, sir. I'll tell a story that, that kind of dabbles at the edges of what you've just been hinting at, whether it's better to be um, technology in the hands of, um, civilizations from uh, uh, beyond the stars rather than um, some human cap- capability about which we are not aware. Um, I want to take us back to the end of the Second World War and um, the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, um, which a unit that had served some um, served some tough times in uh, mm-hmm. in the Second World War and. Um, they uh, they were on maneuvers in late November 1944, and yeah, we're towards the end of the war, but certainly not at the end of conflict yet. And uh, you say lieutenant, I say lieutenant, separated by common <laughs> language. Uh, Fred Ringwald of that rank um, is the first person to know. He's he's an, riding an, obs- an observer in a night fighter, uh, uh, which is piloted by a colleague of his, and. Um, they it, 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 there's a little bit of cloud around uh, and they are going across the Rhine Valley just north of, of Strasbourg, uh, which many of our listeners will know is on the French-German border. And, and at Ringwald, that point, d- sorry, at that point, deep in enemy territory, yes? Uh, yes and no. Well, at least the, in enemy territory. The Germans are, on, are in retreat, right? So they're in contested uh, area. Okay, yes, fair. Certainly an area where you might expect to, to be in combat. Well, my point Uh, is the pilots are not bored sitting around waiting for things to spot. Absolutely right. Um, And and Ringwald says, you know, what are those lights over there in the hills? And um, it's not so it's not just him that that sees it. His colleague flying it, a guy called Ed Schulter and a guy on radar, Donald Myers. All three of them see these um, lights in a row eight to ten of them flying in formation right the point is people mm-hmm. have had lots of explanations for this uh, afterwards but they're flying in a row uh, right. and um they immediately radio uh, allied ground command that first of all ground command says you know we haven't got another flight in the air so it's not us and secondly we can't see what you're talking about on the radar right mm-hmm. so whatever you're seeing is not registrable for us Immediately, of course, they think that the Germans have developed something yeah. that is better than our radar technology, which would have been game-changing and terrifying. So they are rightly extremely interested. They turn their, I mean, very brave, these guys, right? They, they're seeing a technology more advanced than they are flying, and there's yeah. eight to ten of them. They bank, turn, and go to fight. Amazing. And, and at that point, the lights vanish. And... Uh, the men flying that um, sortie uh, from the 415th just feared people would think they were crazy. So they didn't say uh, anything. Yeah. But as time went on, um, more and more people started to see, broadly speaking, the same thing. Um, yeah, five or six flashing red or green lights um, flying in a formation, either in a row or in a T-shape and so forth. 
following me, closing in and then disappearing um, afterwards. Uh, that, that's an account from over Germany itself as the war mm -hmm. was coming further to a close in December 1944. And then just before Christmas um, in, in 44, an entire crew reports seeing uh, two lights in a glow seeming to rise, tailing us, you know, following us in, in the, the flight for about two minutes. And they peeled away to fly along level for a few minutes and then just disappeared. And they, mm. uh, they seemed, according to these crews, to be under perfect control. Um, and then there was a, there's another account of a guy called uh, Lieutenant Samuel Krasny who, who saw what he described as a wingless um, cigar-shaped object. But my point is, uh, and so these guys looking, looking at it, thinking they look sort of cigar-shaped, nicknamed the, the lights they couldn't explain Foo Fighters. Uh, ah, says, ah. Because they were, there's a comic that I'd never heard of called um, Smokey Stover in which Smokey's a firefighter and, uh, and um, he would often declare his kind of punchline uh, was when, where there's food, there's fire. So they, because it looked like a cigar, they declared these things, they called them uh -huh. food, food fighters. Now, people started, um, this made the papers, right? It made the papers in 1945 as the war was coming to a close. And very quickly, theories kind of poo-pooing what the lights were, might have been, um, were offered. You know, they were flares or they were weather balloons or St. Elmo's fire, which is like a, a light that appears on the tip of objects and clouds in, in stormy Also a weather. cheesy 80s movie with the Brat Pack. That too, but they didn't think it was a cheesy 80s movie. <laughs> uh, and, and then less flatteringly for these men, a point I'll address, they also yeah. speculate about whether they, these guys were just crazy through combat. Mm. Now, flares look like flares. They go up, they come down, uh, they don't fly in formation. Weather balloons can't track planes like these objects did. They can't outrun planes. In the and way don't fly in formation. They don't fly in formation. And yeah. these guys had, they were, they were war pilots. They'd seen St. Elmo's fire loads of times. They knew it wasn't that. They could distinguish between those things. And so on the point that these, these men who were you know, kind of sensible, non-conspiracy theory oriented guys, uh, by the way, I, I point to the, to the certainty of them being non-conspiracy related because the majority of them insisted that this was some kind of technology the Germans had developed right. and, and we've never understood. They said, it was not UFO, the Germans work something out and we just don't know about it yet yeah right? so but they, yeah they, they suggested it was combat fatigue the polite way of saying they've you know, gone around the bend yeah war stress but they, they this these units had excellent records and excellent records of of mental and physical fitness they were you know normal airmen uh and uh they are airmen tend not to be inclined towards um crackpot theories yeah. and as i say most of them these guys never suggested that the the things they'd seen were extraterrestrial those right. were theories produced by other people um they were they were convinced that you know, there was late breaking german technology that it, we in the course of um in the course of winning the war didn't quite realize how far the Nazis, albeit losing, had got in some areas of research. That was the theory amongst the, the fighting men who'd seen these aircraft, and I suppose, all these objects. And I suppose that's a theory that is lent some credence by the fact that when the war finished, um, sightings of these particular objects stopped. I'm not suggesting that sightings of UFOs stopped. I'm saying that, yeah. you know, war fighters um, seeing things happening um uh, stop seeing them i see we've got a a request to speak from joe v i'm going to try and allow that uh, jojo and we'll see if you can come in and speak bear with oh, us if the text doesn't work miracles of you, modern technology you, think you can now speak jojo go for it hello i was requesting to talk i am brian's significant other's daughter <laughs> oh no this can't be good we can hear you and i'm fascinated now <laughs> <laughs> Do your worst, Jojo. So, um, literally, I live in San Diego, and something like this really recently happened in San Diego in July. Yes. There was yes. actually one light that appeared in the sky, and then there were four others that appeared in a uniform formation. And literally, the military came out and said that it wasn't them. The cops said it wasn't them, and then they just disappeared. And they had like the same flashing glowing lights and they were perfectly circular. And then they just disappeared after being uniform. Jojo, thank you very much. That is not something I've heard of. Go, go carry on. Yeah. No, I was like, even right. back then, it still yeah. happens to this day. Like it's still seen. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, no you're, you're absolutely right. No, thank well, you. Well, let, 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 let me ask you this though, uh, Jojo, I'll call you by that name. So we don't have any privacy violations. Um, uh, thank you so much for calling in. 
you know, you're a little younger than Alex and I, and Alex is a little younger than I am. Do you treat these kind of reports with an open mind? Do you think they're crackpots? Like, what do you think about them at, at age 20 something? I think of them as like an open mind. I fully believe out of the odds of how big the universe is, I would say that it is a possibility 100% that there is life out there. And I think it would be really naive not to at least consider that because I feel like that's more fear speaking to not believe it rather than being like, hey, this is a literal unidentified flying object that is not seen anywhere else and nothing no one can explain it even some of the best military to these days at 2022 can't explain some things i don't know if you guys have heard of also like skinwalker ranch in utah they literally have crazy ufo sightings and a crazy amount of things and they have put actual scientific research into trying to figure out what goes on and it's literally one of the places in the u.s with the most ufo sightings and they have a special military grade um like radar to track flying objects and they're all the time they have flying objects that are unidentified there are no tail numbers and they just can't see them on the map at all and it's just crazy how even back then to this day there's still ufo sightings and that's why it's just like it's for sure out there And definitely, it's important to pay attention to. Well, thank you so much, Jojo. Much appreciated. And Alex, these these are. Oh, go ahead, Alex. No, I was going to say that's that's it's great to to listen to that. And thank you, Jojo. Um, All I was going to say was, yeah, these sightings do often happen. Uh, The the um, the point I was going to seek to make was that you you less frequently get them um from experienced people like fighter pilots now yes. and, and that this was the the thing that lent such credence to the accounts that i'm talking about i'm not dismissing or discounting the accounts of anybody i'm simply saying it's it plainly in my view at least more credible if multiple experienced combat veterans who are you know not easily shocked and not easily alarmed and indeed very skeptical of the suggestion that's anything to do with ufos and so forth um state that what they have seen but yeah, there is. Uh, I'm just I'm sorry, Brian, I'm going on. So I'm just going to yeah, make right. one, one last point. The other thing that lends credence to the um, to the kind of the Germans figured out something is obviously what happened after the war, because mm-hmm. um, you're American and I'm not. But I have been to Alabama and I have been to Huntsville where uh, Werner von Braun um, was pinched by uh, you guys after the war from the Nazi regime and went to the United States. He you know, became very much, he claimed a U.S. patriot, kind of hid his Nazi history, uh, which came out thoroughly after he died. Uh, he had helped the Nazis develop the V2. And yeah. after the, which is a kind of rocket, and after, there's no way these these lights that people have seen could have been a V2, uh, because, or indeed the, the prototype V3s that we saw um, after the war, which didn't get developed, uh, but were on the German kind of planning books, because those things, you know, were start and go. They produced thrust, you know, you launched them and off it, off it went. It couldn't turn right. on a dime. It couldn't, you know, track things and so forth. But you know, the question was whether Von Braun and, and his colleagues had somehow developed something even more sophisticated, which we didn't know about, and um, had had successful, successfully covered it up. Now, that is a big call, right, that they've managed to, to disguise this. But after the war, as I say, he goes to, to Huntsville. He becomes a spaceflight advocate. He predicts the coming of, you know, the the, the Cold War, Star Wars competition between the blocks yep. and, uh, and Sputnik. He, he's a big part of the NASA. Well, he's the chief architect of Saturn V, for goodness sakes. I mean, mm-hmm. Von Braun is a major player in the American space um, efforts. Uh, I, I just kind of looked open mouthed at the building of Werner von Braun Memorial, yeah. whatever it is. That guy was an actual Nazi. Like, not, <laughs> right. we're, not, we're, we're, not we're how people use the term. You know, you, <laughs> right. we're, we're, we're... destroy everything. Sorry, go on. <laughs> right. No, that's, uh, I mean, yeah, the irony of us um, wanting to tear down statues of George Washington, but leaving right. Werner von Braun that... building standing is, 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 is choice. Most um, of the time, when someone says, that person was a literal Nazi, they were, in fact, not a literal Nazi. Yeah. It's, a, it's <laughs> an insult. In his case, he was a Nazi. And, and the, and the yeah. building is there. Anyway, so um, that's why there's kind of a bit of, a bit of credence to the explanation on the Foo Fighters, but I still don't buy 
um, I still don't buy that as a as an explanation of what those uh, brave fighting men, a uh, number of them, uh, and yes. repeatedly say they saw. So that's the story I wanted to tell. Well, it's a great story, and and uh, to to your to support your skepticism about this being a a Nazi super weapon, the Allies, of course, took charge of the records of the Nazi government after the war. And as everybody knows, the Germans in those days, at least, were very meticulous note takers and filmmakers. And they, in disgusting detail, recorded every aspect of the worst genocide in human history. And the idea that they would somehow not keep records of a major scientific breakthrough like this seems a little bit unlikely. Now, could they have destroyed them all before we got to Berlin? Maybe. But the, the, the sightings of the Foo Fighters fighters, if I can call them that, um, are so consistent with the kinds of movements and formations that future generations of observers have talked about that it seems unlikely it's a coincidence. And to reinforce your other point, Alex, you know, in wartime, a lot of people had to join up and get trained very quickly. And I'm sure the pilots were very well trained in observation. But in peacetime, in the U.S. Navy, in the U.S. Air Force, you spend dozens, if not hundreds of hours getting trained on observation. I mean, even as an intelligence officer, I got trained on every you know profile of a Soviet ship and airplane. The idea that these naval pilots over dozens and dozens of hours would just make a mistake seems unlikely. Yeah, I agree. Look, uh, everyone everyone listening, you've seen how it's done. Jojo showed you stick your hand up and you can uh, speak if you'd like to. Uh, Terry and Jojo are still listed as speakers. We've got a, still got a clutch of um, slots left open for speakers if you'd like to contribute. And there's a bunch of you listening now. So if someone's got a view or a theory or something they want to talk about about UFOs before we go on, now is the time to stick your hand up. Otherwise, we'll Jump carry in. on our own can be about UFOs, can be about drinking, can be about the Hidden History Happy Hour, can be a question you've always wanted to ask a Tory civil servant or a CIA officer. Somebody follow JoJo's lead and pop your hand up. Or not, or not too, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, don't make us call on people. <laughs> all right. Um, I think it is, I think it's too interesting to interrupt because I, I think I think this is interesting as a young 20-year-old. Thank you very much, Jojo. Well, you just, you just made us feel much younger. We appreciate it. Hey, I know who I wanted to hear from. Our amazing executive producer, Ivan Williams, is with us. Ivan has been with us from the very beginning yeah. of this journey. Ivan's a big executive producer in the movies, too. So I, maybe he's got some perspectives on how this stuff's been covered um, in cinema and uh I think um, I think that'd be an interesting thing too, Ivan. You can you hear us? And can you over to you? Yes, I can hear you, Alex hey, and buddy. Ryan. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, the uh, hidden history happy hour in this UFO subject is quite interesting. Uh, I ha can't report that I've seen anything or that's considered a UFO, but hopefully, maybe I'll get an opportunity to that in the future. Right. Well, I had one, as you know, because you were there. I had one kind of decent ghost story in me. Um, Susan Hill, who's a great writer, um, puts in the words of one of her characters, everybody knows a ghost story, everybody has one. And, yeah. uh, and I, I had that one, which you guys weren't expecting when I told it at the Von Bar. I do not have a UFO story. Um, I've never seen, or I don't know anyone who, who claims they have. But the irony is, you, all of us know somebody who says they've, they've seen ghosts and so forth, or believe in ghosts. And the statistical likelihood of the existence of life beyond our planet is so extraordinarily high, but it's, it's widely ridiculed that there are UFOs. And the statistical likelihood, no offense to those who believe in ghosts, that you know, after death, people walk the earth in the afterlife and are occasionally visible to us, seems to me rather less likely, but it's given much more credence. That is strange. I wonder if that's because most people feel like ghosts are less threatening than the potential of aliens. To me, like I said, I'm, I'm not sure that's right it. at all. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I think I might, I might find ghosts, malicious ghosts to me that has some kind of supernatural power is far more likely to pose a threat than, than, a, than a, an extraterrestrial who comes here and presumably wants to communicate because they meant us harm. They could probably do it before we even knew about it. That is true. That's why I've, even when I was a young lad, uh, my grandparents were telling me these stories. I was not as worried about it because I figured any civilization, well, I probably didn't think this when I was seven, but maybe 12, right. that any civilization that could get from another 
star system to us probably could have destroyed us a long time ago if they wanted to. Right. Well, look, I've got a, there's a bunch of people I can see on this. I don't want to embarrass anyone individually. Uh, I'm not going to call people out. And if no one's put their hands up, Brian, we've got a little time left. So I thought I'd tell a second story related well, to can, this. Go, I go, love go that. Ahead. But can I say one other thing about the Foo Fighters? Because yeah, that yeah. name sounds familiar to people. Yes. Indeed. And the reason it sounds familiar to people is it is familiar. The Foo Fighters, of course, uh, is Dave Grohl's uh, band following up on on Nirvana. And Dave Grohl is a drummer, as am I. I don't put myself anywhere close to the same category, but he's also a creative entrepreneur, which I admire. And uh, I actually did run this to ground, so I wasn't speculating. He did name his band Foo Fighters, which is Seattle-based, after the World War II Foo Fighters. No and the reason, Great yeah, man. because he was reading up on ufos in the 90s he got into the craze and he decided that's a great name for a band and uh, so that's the name of the foo fighters that's how it came that's where it came from all right well here's a quick one from me and people may have seen this on twitter because i told it recently but i think it's a great kind of alien ufo type discussion yes we humanity in our best moments in seeking to convey the essential essence of us placed on the Voyager space probe, we placed the same disc, the kind of golden disc on both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And we, uh, and we sent out these space probes, which, you know, we knew in the end would, would lose power and would continue to drift, and, and, but might, once they were beyond our control, be found by alien civilizations. And we placed upon it the distilled kind of best uh, things that humanity had produced hitherto in music to seek to, to try to explain our artistic souls. Uh, and um, one of the things that we put on it were um, was a recording of part of... Um, Johann Sebastian Bach's famous Brandenburg concertos, and um, and that's that made me think of the story that I um, I told on Twitter the other day, which is also a Second World War story, like the first one uh, that I told, because Bach was keen when he wrote the uh, the concertos of getting on the right side of the Margrave of Brandenburg Schwedt. Um, right. who, uh, hence the naming the Brandenburg Concertos. And so, uh, you know, he, he writes this incredibly florid and ornate and rather vomitous to the modern ear, <laughs> uh, dedication to uh, the Margrave and, and presents it to him. Of course, musicians of that age were dependent upon on patronage for income, certainly if you had a lavish lifestyle. And the Margrave, in addition to having a cool title, was a member of the House of Hollandseren, you know, and had inherited vast estates. But he was a kind of precursor of what we have seen in, this is March 1721, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he was a kind of precursor of what we much later thought of as kind of asset rich, cash poor, impoverished aristos in country houses um, around the UK and elsewhere. Anyway, these amaz this amazing piece of music, incredibly graceful piece of music and so forth. Um, sadly for Johann Sebastian Bach, he backed the wrong aristo. Um, yeah. Christian had no real money. Um, his father, Frederick, who was the ruler of uh, Brandenburg, Prussia, hate, basically hated music or certainly didn't like it very much. And so he didn't really give much for an orchestra. The Margrave didn't have anything worth talking about that could play it. So he gives the score to um, the Margrave. It goes in a drawer and gathers dust. It's never played. Christian dies in the uh, 1730s. It's played by others, but never by the, the court of the Margrave, mm -hmm. I mean. And um, Christian dies uh, 1734, so a dozen years on. His devastated family, you know, loving and affectionate as they were, um, promptly auction his uh, property. Uh, and the Brandenburg Concerto original copy is sold for 20 quid equivalent. Oh, and, it, and they were thought to be lost until they turned up in the archives of the town 100 years later. Anyway, which is why the publication of the Brandenburg Concertos takes place officially 100 years after they were written, because nobody mm -hmm. had the original score. During the, second, during the Second World War, uh, they are shoved up the jumper of a librarian uh, who is escaping towards Prussia, fleeing Allied bombing. The Allies bomb the train he's on. He jumps off the train into the woods with the, with the priceless manuscript for the Brandenburg Concertos stuffed up his <laughs> jumper. Uh, and he successfully avoids um, 
at the Allied bombing that, that writes off the train he was on. The reason I tell that story is, is that what, I love the idea of aliens coming to Earth, yeah. having listened to the golden disc on the on one of the voyages and saying, we, were, we had skepticism of humanity, having witnessed all the evil you've done, but we heard this incredible music that you had sent to the stars. And so we are desperate to understand more. Might we please see the original copy and tell me, how did you look after these exactly? <laughs> Obviously, you preserve your treasures in a very yeah, secure yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. That's like the Irish crown jewels from a prior yeah. episode. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, first of all, hashtag stuffed up the jumper. Yeah. I think that's that's got to stick, uh, even for people that don't understand what it means. And uh, as you know, Alex, we had a uh, one of our periodic national security political scandals early in my career, so 35, 40 years ago, uh, in which uh, Oliver North, who was an aide in our White House, uh, was trying to get rid of classified documents and his somewhat fetching secretary, I believe her name was improbably Fawn Hall, literally stuffed them in her, I don't know if you have this word in the UK, Alex, Brazier, and smuggled them smuggled them out of the White House in her brazier. So would that be part of a jumper or not really? No, that's not a jumper, no. But we've got a we've got a request in from Max uh, St. Festin. Uh, Max, I've given you permission to which sound I didn't mean to sound so controlling. The app says give permission to speak. Max, I have uh, pressed the button that says you can speak. So if you can speak, speak Max, un unmute yourself and go ahead. Hi, hey, yeah, thanks for having me up here. Um, just talking about the, the whole uh, ghost thing, I, I was funny. I, for a while, I, I never really believed in, in ghosts or anything. And there was a time where, where I had moved into a place and um, during the pandemic and I was working. And um, it's, it's near a, a church, and, and I think there's a graveyard or something nearby. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> over the course of just me staying there, weird things started happening and um, and the, I guess the biggest thing is, is as, as I remember, as I'm working, um, I, I had my watch next to my computer, and um, my watch it moved completely on its own. There's no, uh, there's no nothing. There's, and I, I'm, I'm looking at the watch moving, and right. I, and I, I didn't know what to make of it, so I just went back to keep working <laughs> until later on. Oh, I just kept freaking right. out what happened. I, gosh, that's, Max, thank you for sharing that, that story. That's, um, that's sent a shiver down my spine. I don't mind admitting. No, that's uh, chilling. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I didn't, I don't know what, like, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it, I mean, I, I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe um, I checked later that day, like maybe it like slid. And I mean, it's a perfectly regular desk. There's nothing on there. Right. And it just right. no seismic activity. Yeah, no nothing. There's it's just moved. And um, but oh. but I remember, I remembered before the during during lockdowns uh, when I was watching the news about the whole UFO thing about the little tic tac shape moving um, above the water. My my mom is a nurse and she's been a nurse for a long long time and and she told me a story two years before the pandemic about, and I never believed her. I, di I didn't, I didn't, I, I just thought it was just, you know, her just talking, but she told me about how she was treating a patient and um, he was a, some kind of a researcher or a scientist and that he um, was, he, w he went insane, but he was working with others in like this underwater facility. And, um, my mom's, I mean, my, my, we, speak, we speak French. So my mom is saying that this whole conversation is happening in French. It's not, um, it's not in English or whatever. But, but the crazy thing is, is that, you know, she, she used to tell me like, and, and I asked her, so what, what, what happened? Like what, um, I mean, what, what happened? But she was saying like, yeah, I have no idea. The guy, the guy just kept talking about it's in the water or something like that. And so, I mean, I've, I've always... I guess I, since the Tic Tac thing, I just thought to myself, if I had to hide on the planet, I mean, I, I'd probably hide in the oceans, you know, it would, it would be yeah. the least place to... Well, that's a very good point, both for uh, yeah. your, the, the ghost point and the UFO point, because um, wherever the technology went that the 
pilots we were discussing spotted the one one part of the earth where uh, we are entirely i mean there's so much of it still that's some crazy percentage of the earth's surface is still over 70 some yeah. exact crane I mean, remarkable because it's you know it's inaccessible or people we haven't tried hard enough to access it and um so i think that's a very good point Thanks, Max. Also the great. plot, also the also the plot of Star Trek Two: Into Darkness. Uh, th- thank you. That's super helpful. Isn't that the one where the Enterprise was under the ocean at the beginning? Uh, one of the one of the Chris Pine Star Trek movies. I think. Yeah, it's yeah. That you, one. You're more of a fan of that that part of Star Trek. I'm a kind of originals guy, but um, I, I'm but uh, I'm not poo pooing. I'm just I prefer it. But to your point, which is great about um, you know, perception, reality changing. Uh, perceptions. You, you you mentioned that the person went quote unquote crazy. Well, you know, there have been eras in history, maybe still in some parts of the world where saying that you had seen ghosts or UFOs would get you labeled crazy. Yeah. So I, you wonder. So let me give you one other um, point on, on the, on people thinking, being thought to be crazy uh, who are not crazy. And it's a story that I'm going to have in my second book. And some people nice. may have seen it, but thank you. Hey, Alex, um, what was, well, sorry, just for, for our new people, what is yeah. the incredibly creative title of <laughs> yeah. your second book? <laughs> so having published lessons from history last year, I got, I got the brains trust together. I convened the elite uh, marketing and PR and we came up after a while uh, with more lessons from history. Uh, the, the difficulty and imaginativeness of that, getting that title explains the delay in publication, by the way. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, so more lessons from history comes out in November and, um, Buy it. Order it now. Thank you. I just want to tell us there's a um, there's a uh, a fungus called ergot of rye that's a nat- it grows on cereal grains and uh, you know so you might find it in beer you might find it more likely in bread it produces this acid. Uh, lysergic acid, which is a precursor required to make LSD. LSD. Uh, right. So, uh, and we understand the effects of that fungus well. You know, was why people talk about psychedelics and magic mushrooms and so forth. We understand that there are funguses that can have really trippy effects on on the mind. But in the Middle Ages, when this fungus in in wheat was far more common than it is now, um, it, it was very poorly understood. And there were people, sometimes whole villages, that were eating bread that was made from rye, which contained this fungus. Yeah, they were basically dropping massive tabs of LSD day after day, week after week, by the villageful. And you uh. might you might think this helps to explain, Brian, some of the mass hallucinations of the era that yeah. that people started to believe because there were simply so many people, so many dignified, normal people, pillars of their community saying, you know, that they really, they heard voices, they witnessed the yeah. heavens open, they saw the face of God. You know, the thing is, they weren't making things up. They were just on massive benders. <laughs> they, they, were, they were tripping off their tits and <laughs> and, and uh, so they were it wasn't just people being carried along by groupthink effect they really were seeing things and i, I wanted to make make two points before i hand mic back to you the first is the effects of ergot of rye are not just felt on humans it also affects yeah. cattle so i love the idea <laughs> i love the idea of cows being massively high man oh my god what's that over there uh, and the, the second is that it, um it, it sometimes caused what we, there was. We called this condition, which we couldn't explain, dancing mania. As uh, one symptom is people heightened sensitivity to rhythmic sounds. And if you've been to uh, concerts where people enjoy yeah. themselves using certain recreational substances, you might be able to yeah. draw modern day comparisons, uh, depending on what your hobbies are to that. Wow. Wow. Well, first of all, I think that should be the lead of more lessons from history. Second, I think hashtag, uh, what was it? Hashtag. Tripping off your tits? No, what was? What did you say? Yeah, I said they were. They were. I said they were massively off their tits, or they're tripping off their tits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that ha- that has to catch on. But but thirdly, I I have been, um, uh, Alex, as you know, I've had some surgery. I haven't been able to play my drums lately, so I've been watching a lot of documentaries about bands that I admire, uh, sort of living vicariously through them. And one of the best is the history of the Eagles, part one and part two. And they talk about how when they went out for their first album cover shoot in the early 1970s, the photographers deliberately drove them to Joshua Tree, which is kind of this 
deserty out by Coachella, um, a spot in the U.S. that 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 is alleged to have uh, religious or supernatural properties, and they dropped acid, and uh, lo and behold, uh, an eagle appeared to all of them in the sky at the same time, and they don't really tell you whether the eagle was actually there or not, but either way, it spawned uh, you know fifty years of great rock and roll. So oh, maybe see. this is not all bad. No, well, that's that's fair. I just you know, consider how bad your acid trip would be if everyone in the medieval village you'd grown up in and never left were dropping <laughs> massive doses daily without understanding what was happening to them. I wonder I that. Should have that I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> no, it's it's. I wonder if that explains a lot of the the crazy practices that. I mean, it does explain a lot of the crazy practices that were right. happening in those days. It has too. been it's been debunked supposedly that that might explain the events depicted in the Crucible, but uh, I don't know well, quite how you go about demonstrating that wasn't true. But anyway, there we are. I I was about to say, and listeners, you may or may not believe this, but this has been an experiment for Alex and me in many ways today. One of which is we have not talked about what we were going to say other than the UFO story at the very beginning. So I did not know you were going to tell this story, but it's, it, it has a lot of resonance because I've been thinking a lot lately about how you try to go back. I don't know if there's even a, maybe there's a branch of history called biohistory or chemical history, but somebody needs right. to look at one, the effects of alcohol and warfare over the centuries, which we've talked about. Mm. And now, and now this, I mean, you wonder it's a cool story how huh? yeah you, it's it's it should it should open a whole new branch of science and i know Brian, we have some we're, science we're, we're coming on. up on the hour but i know terry wants to come back in i think so terry terry speak oh all i was going to say is you know we know that there are so many things that we don't understand that are beyond our understanding mm. that are uh, maybe mystical and if we can find ways to try to open up our minds and expand our human capacity so that we can tune in and hear yes. those aliens or sense those ghosts that I think live in us through our through our DNA. I think we can we can advance ourselves. Well, the most executory, the most optimistic interpretation of those who who are fond of dropping acid is that they are indeed seeking to open the, open their minds. So um, it's a good point. And I I have a, a go for question hey, yeah, go for you. Well, my question for you, Brian, would be, obviously, we know the intelligence communities, uh, you know, keep track of things like UFOs and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, there's the show The X-Files. And to what extent do these intelligence communities monitor other sort of paranormal things, i.e. ghosts or Bigfoot or who knows what, more so than just UFOs? Well, first of all, I'm doing, I'm, for our viewers in the future, I'm wiping my brow and saying, because Jeremy, what I thought you were going to ask me about was the CIA's experiments with LSD under the hashtag MKUltra. Everybody can look that up. So thank you for not asking that. The, look, I mean, the intelligence services in the United States, and I think in, in the UK as well, are pretty completely controlled by the elected leadership. So our priorities in the CIA were the priorities of the president and the and the elected representatives at the time. And so one great example of that is... Uh, in my last few years in the CIA, when Al Gore was the vice president, we actually stood up a unit that looked at environmental intelligence, which we had never done before. And this was this was after the end of the Cold War, we thought. Uh, and so clearly they have been tasked by President Biden. Uh, well, actually, it was a congressional act uh, law that tasked the intelligence community to look at the reports of unidentified. Now we call them here UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, to look at those. So has there been a time when a president in secret has asked our intelligence community to look at Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or Stonehenge? I don't know. But if we were asked, we would have done it. Uh, Jer- uh, can, I, can I follow up on that quickly? We're all, we'll come up on the hour. We're going to need to wrap. But you mentioned we might talk about something in a couple of years rather than now. What did you mean by that? Well, thank you, Alex, for putting me on the spot. Uh, I, I know certain things about Area 51, and um, I can't talk about them, but I believe they're scheduled to be declassified in about uh, three years. But a president can extend the classification on something, right? Yes. So so what happens is you put a presumptive declassification date on information. Then the current president can extend it, although that's been done less and less recently. We, we've gotten a little bit less um, fetishistic about keeping things secret forever, and that's probably for another episode.
Well, guys, we are at the hour mark. We promised to finish uh, on time. Uh, I have loved that. What a great note to end on, by the way. We'll be back in three years to discuss Area 51 <laughs> in another live episode. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for staying with us. This has been the very first live episode of the Hidden History Happy Hour. I'm delighted you could be with us. And I feel the same, Alex, and I feel like this is encouraging us to have many more. Jojo, thank you. Max, uh, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Anyone who is not already subscribed to us, please do. Follow and us on we YouTube. will see you next time. Alex, cheers. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.